Hello and welcome to Mobility Minute, a bite-sized podcast for people on the move. I'm your host, Justine Rusho from the Greater Mercer TMA. Every week, you'll find an episode about transportation and mobility that you can listen to when you're on the go. We also interview some pretty amazing people who work in different corners of the transportation space. Whether you drive, bike, walk, skate, roll, or take public transit, these episodes will guide you through the world of planning and transportation in New Jersey as we talk about how to make it safer, easier, and greener to get around in Mercer and Ocean County. Hey everyone, and welcome back to the Mobility Minute podcast. Today I am joined by Leanne Von Hagen. She's the managing director at Voorhees Transportation Center, and you can find her at the Blaustein School of Planning and Public Policy at Rutgers University, where she's also an adjunct professor. Leanne is one of the most vibrant people I know, someone who I hold great admiration for as a planner, as a teacher, and as a person. Leanne, would you like to say hello? Yes. Hello, everybody. And thank you, Justine. That was really kind of you. (laughs) Oh, I'm so glad to have you on here. When I think of highly effective people, Leanne, I think of you. Oh, wow. (laughs) (laughs) And as our listeners hear us talk on the podcast, I'm sure that they'll see why. I'm so (laughs) excited to have you here today. So let's start. One of the first questions I like to ask my guests is, how did you find yourself in the world of planning? That's always a great question, especially I think for planners and people who work in the urban planning profession, because most of us, I would say, we didn't know planning was a thing growing up. I certainly didn't. At the very end of my senior year, I had a few credits to fill and I took this class called Intro to Urban Planning on a whim. (laughs) And I loved it. I loved it. I had no idea planning was a thing. You hear of architects, you hear of engineers, you hear of landscape architects, but planning isn't necessarily something people understand as its own discipline and profession. So I guess going to that intro to urban planning undergraduate course was probably something that started me on my way. But when I took an internship working at the New Jersey Department of Environmental Protection, I started working for some really wonderful people who were all planners. And so that was much more of an introduction of not just some of the the theory of what planners can do, but what real planners were doing for the Department of Environmental Protection. Can you tell me a little bit more about the intersection that you specifically work in? Yes, absolutely. So like I said, I kind of got my start working at the Department of Environmental Protection. I was in the Division of Science and Research, and I really wanted to work in the environmental field in many ways. I was also starting to really get into things like climate change and working more and more on climate change and how we build and use land use in the state was really where I started to see more of an impact. So climate change has a heavy connection to land use. Land use has a heavy connection to planning. Where we build things, how we build things is extremely important to addressing the public and environmental health of people in our state, the country, the world. One of my early projects at the Department of Environmental Protection was working on environmental justice. So things like environmental justice have been part of our our lexicon for a long time, which is good, but also quite disappointing when you think about, are we where we need to be with topics like environmental justice? So what kind of happened with my career trajectory was honestly, at the time I was working for the Department of Environmental Protection, it was on a part-time basis. 
So I was offered to take a job for a consulting firm, working on environmental consulting, on transportation consulting, on historic preservation, and it offered wage and benefits. So what were the kinds of projects that you got to work on in consulting? What what does a consultant do? (laughs) Are they like mercenaries of planning, you know? (laughs) The good side of consulting work is, again, I got the opportunity, especially as as more of an entry level, to work on a bunch of small and different things. And in a larger consulting firm, I got to work sometimes in different divisions. So some of the early projects I worked on weren't necessarily even in New Jersey. It was going and looking at land use files in Illinois or South Beach in Miami. So there were some interesting things like that, or a wacky one that's sort of an outlier in my experience was doing noise monitoring in Las Vegas for a highway expansion. And those kind of projects were difficult because I'm being asked to do noise monitoring, knowing it's for a highway expansion, knowing they want to take an already ginormous highway with multiple lanes and make it even bigger. And knowing environmentally, that's not a great project. We have a few episodes where we talk about why road expansions are not always the best idea in terms of traffic and congestion. So a lot of your work has been in health, in transportation, in environmental planning, all very impactful things. And in your personal life, you're also quite an environmental advocate. You are a cyclist, you're an outdoorsy woman. Can you talk a little bit about like, which came first? (laughs) I grew up doing a lot of hiking, camping, thanks to my parents. Most of my vacations with my parents growing up were to national parks within the country. Didn't do a lot of outside the country, except for occasionally Canada. Did you grow up in New Jersey? I did grow up in New Jersey and in Tennessee. My parents grew up in Tennessee and Kentucky, and we were visiting all the time. And I'd spend a large amount of time in Tennessee every year, especially pretty much all summers every year of my life, which is what attracted me to do work to address the environment. So I kind of came at this from enjoying the outdoors, wanting to camp, hike, walk, bike more, and seeing the environmental benefits of that and wanting to preserve our national heritage, places like national parks, expanding more park access, seeing how even small parks can make a big difference to local communities. So I did come at this from that level. I didn't think of it at the time. I mean, nobody really grows up and thinks, I'm going to take my interest in bicycling and make it a profession unless you're going to be racing, right? I don't think many people even know that that's an option. Right. Exactly. Which goes back to planning's a thing that you can be paid for. Right. It's an obscure, fun, interesting, fascinating field that is very much behind the scenes, but also so impactful in people's everyday lives. And the work that you do right now for the Safe Routes Bicycle and Pedestrian Resource Center is an example of something that people may not always be thinking about. So what are the type of services that you offer and who is a typical client? <laughs> so, yeah, I mean, let's talk about the resource centers at Voorhees Transportation Center at the Blaustein School of Planning and Public Policy, which is at Rutgers. So both resource centers have a fairly long history being a resource to the state funded by the New Jersey Department of Transportation. And the 
Bicycle and Pedestrian Resource Center goes back to the late 90s, early 2000s, beginning its roots in research and doing research on how to address safety for people walking and biking, but also doing things like hosting a statewide bicycle and pedestrian advisory council for the Department of Transportation and hosting meetings and information sessions, discussion sessions, roundtables, focus groups in both resource centers. But I started consulting firms. I moved from one to another to another a little bit through my career. In the last consulting firm I was in, one of the things that was burgeoning at the time was a new federal transportation infrastructure bill called Safety Lou, which is a pretty terrible acronym, but it's about safe transportation. And in it was a provision to begin a new program and funding for what was called Safe Routes to School. And in New Jersey, there already had been a history. So prior to this federal Safe Routes to School program, there was state funding for safe streets to school. Because what the Department of Transportation had been seeing with grant applications coming in from municipalities is even if they just called it like our pedestrian safety grant, 99% of them were about travel to and from school and making it safer for kids to get to and from school, which is, is a... It's a huge concern. A huge concern. So let's talk about that a little bit more. It starts with an interest in protecting the smallest, cutest, most vulnerable members of our society, our children. But it's not just children who benefit from this. So I'm trying to think about who might be walking to school, and or not just school, but walking and using the sidewalk networks. Usually people who don't have cars or don't want to have cars. A third of the people in New Jersey do not drive. And they don't drive because they're too young. They're not eligible. They don't want to drive. Maybe they have a physical or some other disability that would prevent them, even if it's temporary. There's definitely times in many people's lives when temporarily they're not able to drive from surgery or injury or some other thing, or they're at an age where maybe they shouldn't be driving anymore or don't feel comfortable driving anymore. Maybe there's night blindness you get when you get older and you're not really able to see at night anymore. And you might be limiting your driving hours to daylight hours, or maybe other cognitive or physical disabilities are setting in where you really can't drive anymore. So that's easily a third of the population. And I don't have the exact number on it because that's a third of the population of the country. I mean, it's just easily a third of the population. That's not small. That's not a small sector at all. Going from driving and not being able to drive is extremely crippling and paralyzing, not just physically, but socially, economically. So it's not just about paving a sidewalk. It's about creating an environment that allows for people to be able to move regardless of where they are in their life. Correct. Correct. And you want redundancies in the transportation system. Like if you look at transportation theory, if you only have one avenue to get where you need to be going, you're going to get stranded. Yeah. (laughs) So you need multiple options. Most people may pick up their keys to drive wherever they need to go if they have that kind of privilege and money and the ability. However, a lot of people don't have that. And, you know, beyond just the age or ability or not wanting to, there's an economic factor. Owning your personal vehicle is incredibly expensive and has only been skyrocketing. So paying for the vehicle, paying for repairs, paying for insurance, upkeep, fuel, 
That's a huge part of most people's thinking about the income that they spend, where income goes out, how much is paid for housing, how much is paid for transportation, how much is paid for food, how much is paid for heating or other necessities. If you can shrink that transportation dollars, you can really improve the life for so, so many people. But that can't be just by happenstance. That's got to be by specific policy and infrastructure improvements so that people feel safe walking out their door and getting to their destination, whether it's walking, bicycling, micro-mobility, car share, bike share, scooter share, multiple, multiple types of redundancies doesn't strand people. And one thing that has kind of brought that to the forefront for a lot of people has been the pandemic, especially in 2020. But continuing, we did see transportation shut down, especially for people with disabilities and seniors. So for a while, things like municipal senior buses stopped operating completely. And then when they did come back, they came back with a very limited number of passengers they would take. So if the shuttle used to take 25 or 30 people, they'd cut that in half, and now you only have 15. And then it became much, much harder for people to schedule those shuttles that might have taken them to a doctor's appointment to get on that list. The list grew. So there are a lot of tools in the toolbox about addressing the transportation infrastructure system and making it healthier and more accessible for people. But people are real used to the status quo and don't even always realize it could be better and how it could be better and what even to ask for. Right. So this is an issue that affects so many people. And people may not always feel empowered or even knowledgeable enough to do something about it. So let's say, you know, I'm an average pedestrian. How would I even begin to notice or even begin to start taking stock of my surroundings and what I can do about it? What's the first step? I think a lot of people do if they feel empowered to do so. I wish I had a really short answer that, hey, yeah, everybody should just do this and the world would be a better place. You've basically nailed it. It is one of the most common problems is maybe you don't feel like you have agency to make a complaint in the first place. And do you even see it? Do you just see the maybe terrible conditions you have to walk or to cross the street as just life? And this is what it is and there's nothing anybody can do about it? That's a huge barrier that's really hard to overcome. And it's not something that's really discussed in the media. There's no TV shows that go through it. There's no TikTok about it as much. I mean, actually, there are a few TikToks about it, but you'd have it's to- growing. It's fascinating it's growing. that it's growing. And I'm so thrilled that it is. But it's true. The public outreach, I guess, is a little scant right now. And not everyone has that resource or infrastructure in place to be able to feel like, hey, I can, at a push of a button, send my complaint in and I will see this change start to happen slowly. Exactly. And change is slowly. And that's the other frustrating piece of it. If you do find you can go talk to your town and you maybe you go to a, a council meeting and you bring it up in open forum discussion, which is A, incredibly intimidating. I don't know your experience, Justine, with going to any random or your own town's council. Oh my God. I can barely order my drink at Starbucks. (laughs) 
it's very intimidating because you've got to follow rules and process that you may have zero experience with or knowledge of. And so if you're just walking into that meeting for a first time and you're looking at the agenda and there's like, I think there's a place I can do an open comment. I don't know where it is. I don't know what to say. How do I even do this? The barrier is already very, very high. Right. Are there spaces outside of that municipal process that people can take action or join a group or start conversations around the places they live? Like there are groups like Vision Zero, Complete Streets. Right. And those are where you can get more of a comfort level where you can learn from others. I would even say if you're interested in bicycling, your local bicycling club, if you have one, depends on the club. Some of the clubs are really set up for more racing and much more fitness goals and less about how we can make our own town better. But even things like scouts, there's been a lot of things through scouting organizations, some church or other religious organizations But it is hard to find that sweet spot where you're going to find some people because the other intimidating thing is always to do it alone. It's less intimidating if you find a group of people who are like, yeah, we also have this concern. Let's all go do it together. And that's usually more the catalyst it takes to have a a concerned group of people bring it up as an issue and meet with the town. Now, I will say this, it's intimidating, but for those who have taken the process, Maybe it hasn't gone 100% smoothly, but I think most towns that I have worked with, they're open to that discussion. They're not going to shut you down. They're not going to tell you no. And back to like the idea of safe routes to school, one of the key ways to get a foot in the door is through youth organizations. So if you've ever been in a council meeting and say a group of middle schoolers come to that meeting and say, we can't cross the street to our school. Oh my goodness. Yeah, it works really well to get the That is that's actually a really good idea. Or anti-idling is another big thing that often we find middle schoolers are like, we know it's often our own parents who are idling outside of the school and it's really impacting our air quality, but we need the town's help to so it's just not us telling parents not to idle. We could use the town's help. Like, can you back us up that you can't idle outside of school? So there's all sorts of these issues. But again, sometimes it gets intimidating because you feel like you have to be the utmost uh, expert in it in order to even bring it up. I am so glad that you brought that up because I think that one of the challenges that people have when they're speaking up about something is that there's so much responsibility. You feel like you are the representative of the cause. It doesn't have to be that way. It can be just like, we have a concern, maybe not all the answers, but the point is we're speaking up and you would like to work on it and find the answers together. And I think that's a little bit like what you said earlier, the strength in numbers, the strength in collaboration, the strength in relating to people and getting to know this community that can do something about it is something that's very, very important and very, I think, crucial in pushing these kinds of initiatives forward. And to know that there are resources out there. So just to bring it back around to the New Jersey Bicycle and Pedestrian Resource Center and the New Jersey Safe Routes Resource Center is both centers were set up with help desks for just this kind of issue. So you could email us, you could call us, you could look on our websites for resources to hopefully help you feel a little bit more 
stable and on firm ground when you do make this request to talk to us before you go to your council meeting to help refine maybe what you're really asking for because as a resource center that's where we can help and as planners that's where we can help is it does help if you can speak the right language which is in any profession in any discipline there is a certain lingo there's a vocab that's associated with it and I try to avoid all of that, especially jargon at all costs. But at some point, when often you're bringing an issue forward, if you happen to say the right words, like I'm interested in, say, complete streets, which is, again, a very jargon-filled word and concept, but it's made its way through the state, counties, regionals, and most local municipal levels that now the people who are hearing those words might then be able to say, oh, I have a better idea what you're asking for. And there's funding. Okay. I think we need to define what complete streets is, though, for people who might not know what that is and might be hearing it for the first time. So complete streets is a concept. It's a movement. It's popular enough that there's funding for it. But the concept basically is that streets should be designed and should function to allow safe use for all users, not just cars, not just bicyclists, but also pedestrians, public transportation riders, people with disability of all ages. So it is what it sounds like, complete streets. And sometimes people are just like, how can you not have a complete street? What does that even look like? So. Right. And that's a legit question. It is. It is. Because again, it's like if you live in a place where you are highly car dependent and you don't know anything else, you don't see a lot of pedestrians and cyclists, you wouldn't even begin to think, oh, we should have infrastructure for these people. So it's kind of a chicken and egg situation. You could start with a bike lane. You could start with a sidewalk or you could wait until someone complains and asks for it. Okay. So I wanted to discuss something that we had talked about off air. In your personal life, you are a cyclist, you're an advocate, you're an environmentalist, but you're also a mother of what you call free range kids, which I thought was a fascinating concept. I did a little bit of research on what it was, but I wanted to ask you to describe for our listeners in your own words and from your own experience, what is a free range kid? And it's just a a fun terminology. It's funny because it came from a journalist. I'm pretty sure she's out of New York, Lenore Skenazi because it's building off of free range chickens mean like they're not they're not cooped up <laughs> they're not cooped up where you know they have no range to walk or or go around and that sort of thing so it basically is that if you believe our children are in constant danger from kidnapping creeps people up to no good you're going to never let them out of your sight ever. And that will inhibit their ability to be independent later in life because they really won't have the chance to experience things at a young age so that when they do get to like, say the driving age and getting their first driver's license, that they're really responsible enough to drive in a way that's responsible. So it it does stem from early ages. So what you would do for a five-year-old is going to be different from what you're going to do from an eight-year-old, which is different from an 11-year-old. But it's definitely finding ways to find that comfort level so that you can basically watch your child walk to school and say goodbye. 
have fun and not feel like you have to chaperone them either by driving usually for a lot of suburban parents or by walking with them. It's given them the opportunity to experience the environment on their own and make their own decisions, good or bad. So in practice for me, Luckily for my K through 12 school, it's a walkable neighborhood and it's a small town. And from a very young age, I would encourage my kids to just walk to school on their own, which was about a 12 to 15 minute walk. It definitely is hard to let go. And it is hard not to think of the worst case scenarios. And it is hard when your neighbors may be looking down on their nose at it or saying, you may do that, but I would never. How could you possibly trust them? How do you know that it's it's not my kids I don't trust, it's everybody else I don't trust? I guess it's both the comfort level as a parent and comfort level as a child. Right. We're not stranding them and giving them, it's not a game of survival. Well, and it's incremental. So it's a little bit like, this is where you can go today. And then if you show me over the next weeks, months, whatever, that this is successful, then we expand the boundaries. I was just often willing to do that at a much earlier age than some of my counterparts were with their kids. But I guess in order to be able to do that and to be able to trust that this kind of style can work, you have to be able to trust that the environment is walkable, is bikeable, is safe. And it's never going to be perfectly walkable and bikeable and safe. There's going to be a lot of things. And we live in New Jersey. (laughs) There's definitely some great places to walk and bike. But there's a lot of places that aren't. And then there's a whole lot of in between where maybe the block from your house to four blocks away is perfectly fine. But it's that one road they have to cross between your home and the school. And you're like, if it wasn't for that run road, we'd be fine. And maybe it's figuring out, okay, then what needs to happen on that one road? So it's not the chasm and the barrier from kids having their independence, whether it's to school, whether it's to a local park, whether it's to going and visiting a little store downtown and getting some after-school treats (laughs) or taking public transportation. Many children take public transportation. I think that's something we've learned with Safe Routes to School, especially there are a lot of children who take public transit buses, take the trains to get to whatever school they're going to, whether it's public or private or charter. Sometimes they do have to get across town and they're taking the crosstown bus. That's a really important skill to learn is how to take the bus successfully early on in life so that that's not the barrier from you getting your job later in life. I think the important distinction also that I like to bring up has been my experience is there's something everybody needs to learn And it's really helpful if you can learn this while you're still young growing up. And that's a sense of street smart. So a sense of if there is danger, can you recognize it? There's only one way to learn that. And that's through experience of walking to and from in your neighborhood almost daily. You're not going to know something's off if you don't know what the norm is. So if your child is in the backseat of your vehicle every time they take a trip, They're not going to get a sense of the neighborhood. They're not going to get a sense of what area is safe, what to look out for. And it's chalking it up to experience. The more data you have, the more information you have, the more confident you can be. Right. We did a really great study. I had a student working on her PhD at the time, and she was really fabulous. And we did these interviews where first we interviewed the parent without the kid. 
And then while the parent was still around, we interviewed the child and we basically asked the same questions about what do you feel is safe? What do you usually do? What do you feel is a real danger in your neighborhood? And for the most part, the parents would answer things like stranger danger. And then you'd talk to the kids and they'd say, I'm not really worried about strangers. I don't really, I kind of know everybody in this neighborhood. What I don't like is that when teacher so-and-so gets in their car right as the school bell ends and they get on their phone and they start talking on their phone as they're driving by me as I'm crossing the street, I'm worried they're going to hit me. And that's really telling. Like what is really the danger out there? Somebody talking on their phone while they should be driving or the rare chance that there is somebody out there to abuse your child? That's a great point is that I think the perception of danger of parents and the perception of danger of a child or someone who's actually using the street and the sidewalk would be very different. So it just kind of it makes me think about, they say that if you want to be a board member of a transit agency, you should at least be using the service. I would say if you work for a public transit and work in this discipline, you need to be comfortable, familiar with, and use public transit. If you want to work on making it better for people to walk or to bicycle or to take e-scooters, you need to use those facilities. You need to be out there in the environment. You need to know what people are experiencing. Doing it from a desktop isn't really that helpful. You can identify some barriers by just looking at maps, but that doesn't give you the real feel for the real environment. I think that's a great place to end. Yeah, I think so too. I think we learned a lot in this pandemic. People used their mental health in a lot of place. A lot of things people reported was if I didn't have my daily walk, I would have gone nuts. And we're really still feeling that to this day. We need to provide people this outlet that they can safely walk and bike in their neighborhood or to other destinations or to take public transit. And these need to be available to people in a safe easy and accessible way. And we know in a lot of places in New Jersey, that's just not the case. So Leanne, thank you so much for coming on today. Is there any way that our listeners can reach out to you and learn more about your services and what you do? Yes, absolutely. First stop would probably be the two websites that we have that are sponsored by the Department of Transportation and part of Rutgers University, the New Jersey Bicycle and Pedestrian Resource Center, which is bikepednj.org and the Safe Routes Resource Center, which is njsaferoots.org. We have a lot of resources on those sites. You can get all sorts of contact information for myself, as well as the absolutely fabulous staff and colleagues that I have to work with who are also equally, if not more so knowledgeable and can be really helpful, whether your question is hyper-local and about something that's happening in your neighborhood, or if you have questions about your larger region or statewide efforts, we're here. Part of the goal of the Resource Center is to provide these help desks and to work with you to address your bicycle and pedestrian, and now also micromobility like e-scooter, e-bikes, those types of needs. So absolutely, we look forward to anybody reaching out with your questions And we'd be happy to work with you to see how we can help connect you to some of the resources that might get you to that next level. If you like this episode and want to hear more, you can follow us and subscribe to Mobility Minute to get new episodes every week. Connect with us on Instagram at Mobility Minute Pod 
or on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at GMTMA to hear the latest news and updates from us throughout the week. You can also find us on our website at gmtma.org to access our resource library and learn more about what we do. That's gmtma.org. I'll drop all these links in the description box for you. Signing off, I'm Justine Rasho, and this is Greater Mercer TMA's Mobility Minute, a bite-sized podcast for people on the move. Thank you so much for joining me today, and happy travels.